So I think tonight is a, a wonderful occasion um, in which I think everybody in the room has been here many times, so hardly any introductions are necessary. But I would just say uh, to start, so I'm Frank Clooney, director of the center in case there's anyone I haven't met here, is that um, as, as John will be able to say, how many events have happened in this room since the center opened in 1960 and how many conversations and book events and discussions over the years. So I think it is, is a wonderful event for us to be here tonight. I would point out as we get started that this is part of a series we have of faculty book events. So every semester I invite faculty, if you've published a new book or co-edited a new book and would like to have a discussion of the book at the center, please pick two discussants, two respondents, and we'll have an event. So we have two more book events coming up this semester. Matthew Potts, one of our younger faculty, Cormac McCarthy and the Signs of Sacrament on November 16th, and then on December 3rd, Ahmed Raghab, the Medieval Islamic Hospital. And these events have proved in general to be wonderful events over the past few years, a chance to take up and celebrate our colleagues' books. But I think none of them can surpass the event we have tonight. Um, it's a rare opportunity to imagine writing a book and then 50 years later writing a second version of your book, coming back and visiting the same places. We should all be so lucky to have this happen. Uh, for anybody, in case there's anyone in the room who doesn't know John, and I'll probably step all over it, but I'll say a few things. Uh, so John is, was at the Divinity School full-time from 63 to 2000, I believe that's right. Was acting dean at one point, was director of the center here from 1973 to 1989, and had other roles at the center before that and after that. So the very center itself kind of has the spirit of John all over it. Um, and um, the, the front room, which is the conference room, was for many decades the, the director's apartment. And we've often talked, if only we had the money, we would restore it, including the famous fireplace and so on, as it was in the beginning. Um, John also was the Parkman Professor of Divinity while here at the Divinity School, which I'm honored to have that same chair, so it's nice to have that connection between the two of us. Um, John has published so much that it's, it's impossible to mention and perhaps not necessary to mention some of his works. But he's, first of all, he's been a great colleague in editing volumes. I was looking at the collection uh, back in 1978 with Donald Daw, Christian Faith in a Religiously Plural World, uh, with Frederic, was Frederic, Frederic Apfel Margulan, Purity and Auspiciousness in Indian Society, 1985, uh, with Frederick Strang. Spoken and Unspoken Thanks, Some Comparative Soundings, 1989, with Steve Hopkins, Tracing Common Themes, Comparative Courses in the Study of Religion, uh, 1991, with Mark Jurgensmeyer, A Bibliographical Guide to the Comparative Study of Ethics, 1991. And anyone, as you know, who's edited a volume knows that it takes extra patience and extra political generosity and skill to be able to get people to do their work together. And that's quite um, important of John's um, legacy, and also important books of his own hand by himself, The Theology of Ramanuja, uh, the book that I knew John through first when I was in graduate school, a book that is still used as a basic text in the study of Ramanuja, 1974, with Vasudan Narayanan, who will be here to speak in the spring, um, 1989, The Tamil Veda, Pilan's Interpretation of the Tiruvaimori, a, a wonderful book that I've also used over the years, 
uh, John's kind of great comparative study, Majesty and Meekness, a comparative study of contrast and harmony in the concept of God, 1994. And then um, Don Swearer, my predecessor, um, uh, as director of the center, asked John and Kit Dodgson to work together on a history of the center. And a book that we have, we can show you afterwards if anyone's not seen it, Community and Colloquy, the reflections on the center between 1960 and 2005 or so. And a wonderful um, history, but also sensitive interpretation of the center. So John um, has been, a, and I, I won't go into the articles and so on, uh, a great writer, a great contributor to the, the work of the center and the work of the study of religion, comparative religion. And that brings us to the, the books we're celebrating tonight. I'll, I'll pass them around in a moment. Uh, the first book um, from 1968, Rural Churches in South India, Village Christians and Hin Hindu Culture. Uh, so a study that he did with uh, P.Y. Luke, Reverend Luke, back in the 60s. And tonight we celebrate the second version of it, Christians in the South Indian Villages, 1959 to 2009. Just a little bit of background, and then I'll stop talking. Um, John wrote a wonderful article in 2008 for the International Bulletin of Missionary Research, uh, kind of your career in retrospect. Many interesting things in this article. I can show it to you if you want. But he talks about how this book came to be. Uh, so he was at the Christian Institute for the Study of Religion and Society, I believe, in Bangalore. Um, and he said, one of the tasks I worked on while at the Institute was unexpected assisting a presbyter of the Church of South India, the Reverend P.Y. Luke, in conducting a study of some village congregations north of Hyderabad. At the time, this project seemed to me a fascinating but costly distraction from my study of Hindu theology, making it difficult to complete my dissertation before Yale's deadline. I think we all have these feelings. Good projects get in the way of other good projects. In retrospect, however, my involvement was most fortunate for the study of these village Christians turns out to be a study of the village religion in which they still participated. Dual affiliation, such an important term today, including their celebration together of both Hindu and Christian festivals, was an embarrassment to church leaders, but it was part of a situation of permeable religious boundaries that left many non-Christians open to dreams of Jesus as healer. So I had an unexpected opportunity, John says, to learn about a village Hinduism very different from the devotional tradition I was studying in Bangalore, yet strikingly similar to the religious environment of Christians among whom I had grown up only 150 miles away. How such village Hinduism should be related to Christian efforts at interreligious dialogue was and remains outside the most Christian reflection on dialogue and all the more important that this project came about. So background, a fortuitous project in the same article, John talks fortuitously about he came to visit the center for a year or so and stayed on for 37 years, I think, um, <laughs> a long time. Um, the format tonight is that we'll invite John up first to talk about the book, how it came about, uh, anything he'd like to say in that regard. And then I'll introduce our two discussants who will open up different angles of the book and then we'll open up a general discussion. So let us welcome warmly John Carmen. Thank you, Frank, and uh, an initial thank you to the center also for providing the funds that made this, uh, this second book possible. 
uh, following a conversation with Don Swearer back in, I think it was 2007. Uh, I'll try to be brief, uh, not only leave a few more minutes for my respondents, um, but also uh, maybe a few more minutes uh, at the end <laughs> uh, to respond to my respondents. <laughs> so let me uh, say a few things, really a number of them questions, some of them we tried to answer and some of them are still questions. Why did we undertake the study that led to the, to the present book? It was to try to answer questions arising in the study 50 years earlier, uh, which I was junior partner to the Reverend P.Y. Luke. Uh, that study had shown that these Protestant Christians, almost all of them members of the Dalit caste, were sharing in village Hindu customs to a much greater degree than was officially recognized. So the first question was, is this still true? Second question, a few families from the so-called higher caste were attending Christian worship or even joining the Christian community through baptism because someone in the family had been healed, they believed, through the power of Christ and sometimes through the appearance of Lord Jesus in a dream. Have such conversions because of miraculous healings continued? That's the second question. And the third, some Christians were registering as Hindus in order to qualify for grants of land or scholarships restricted to Dalits, that is those from the lowest so-called outcasts, restricted to Dalits, but only if they registered as Hindus. Has that continued or even intensified? With funds, as I said, from the, the center here, enabling a new study beginning in 2008, uh, I had found uh, a partner for this study actually introduced to him in Bangalore by uh, our respondent this evening, uh, Sati Clark. Uh, this was, uh, at that time he was, uh, he had finished his uh, uh, ministerial studies and uh, experience in villages and had come back for a, uh, a master's degree. He later uh, went uh, and got a uh, doctor's degree in Germany, in Hamburg. Uh, his field at um, the, uh, uh, the Andhra Christian Theological College in Hyderabad uh, is in uh, what we here call Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Uh, fortunately, he also had the help of eight students from the seminary uh, who were members of the 
Church of South India Medic Diocese. Um, uh, and they helped to collect information from the various uh, people in the various congregations that we had studied before. Uh, and they discovered that the answer to all three questions that I started with was yes. Yes, the, the mixture of Hindu and Christian customs had continued. Yes, uh, there were Hindus becoming Christians because of miraculous healing. Uh, uh, and yes, and uh, there were many Christians who registered as Hindus in order to get benefits that they believed really were their right as, as Dalits. Um, so what did all of the stories amount to that we got about different individuals and families? I can put them in into three categories. You might say three larger stories. The first is that of the decline of many older CSI congregations, a few of which uh, have disappeared. The second story was a surprise to me. The founding during the last 30 years of many Pentecostal and independent Baptist churches located in the same or adjacent villages uh, as the older CSI congregations. Most of these newer churches have many members from the trading and landowning castes that consider themselves much higher in caste rank than the Dulles, also higher in financial status. But there are also families joining these new churches from one or other of the two Dalit castes. And unlike the older churches, which uh, where the pastors receive their salaries from the, the central office of the diocese and where the people in the village contribute very little, in these independent churches, they have to pay their pastor's salary or there is no pastor. Uh, that's the second story. All these new uh, independent churches. The third story is almost as surprising, and that's the establishment or renewal of congregations affiliated with the Church of South India, Medic Diocese, but with what we might call a Pentecostal style especially the emphasis on healing from illness, accidents, and black magic after fervent prayer to Lord Jesus. In all three congregations of this type, leadership has come from lay people, and one congregation was founded by a retired Christian nurse who came out from Hyderabad City and conducted a ministry of preaching and healing prayers. 
one aspect of the first story is in the public record. According to the Indian census, taken every 10 years, the number of Christians in the state of Andhra Pradesh has fallen by half in the last 40 years. Now, we didn't try to find out how many of the Dalit Christians uh, still active in the older congregations were considered by the government to be Hindus. To protect such Christian families, the medic diocese has discontinued its previous uh, practice, British Methodist practice, of meticulous church records. Now they keep no records at all. <laughs> and so we didn't feel that we should go around and ask people. <laughs> uh, but uh, we did hear an interesting story from another part of the state uh, in a different denomination. Uh, so I'm not giving away anything. Uh, <laughs> that everyone in this congregation, except the, the pastor, had registered uh, as Hindus. That didn't mean they didn't come to church anymore. In fact, they contributed enough money to build a new and bigger church. <laughs> but for, as far as the government was concerned, they were all Hindus. Now, the, the, we just don't know what this means, but it is significant that the, the census of how many Christians there are in India, 23 million, I think it was in 2001, that that's only about half of what various, by various other calculations, the number of Christians. Uh, and that led to one of the, the questions that, that I end up with, uh, how are Christians to be counted? You might even ask, should they be counted at all? <laughs> uh, now, uh, let me just conclude by noting the questions that we have at the end of the book, which are questions. They're not conclusions, really, but they are also indicating challenges facing these different kinds of Christians. First, will the Christians, especially those in the older churches, divide their lives between certain Christian rituals and other rituals in the Hindu sphere? Uh, we found back at the time of the first study that they celebrated Christmas and Easter, uh, so two Christ Christian festivals uh, and about a dozen Hindu festivals. And then, for good measure, Muharram, uh, Muslim festival. Uh, will that continue? Or will uh, the effort of the official church, uh, the leaders of the diocese, uh, to adapt as many Hindu customs as possible, will that lead eventually to some kind of, of, uh, of new uh, local um, I'd say Indian, even Hindu, village, Christian culture. Second question. 
Will the older Christian congregations continue to include so many in a second-class status? That is, Christians who are baptized but who never get around to the second step of being confirmed, so they're un ineligible to receive communion or to take part in the government of the church. Third question, will the older congregations develop lay leaders to expand the presently inadequate pastoral care? Uh, there simply aren't enough pastors for all of these churches, so each pastor has to take care of two, three, four, or even more churches. Fourth question, will members of the newer multicast churches recognize the plight of Dalits in present Indian society? Fifth, can the emphasis on positive answers to prayer avoid the negative side of the prosperity gospel, which is well known now around the world, that is, the negative side is the condemnation of those who do not receive the blessings of health and wealth. One of the students uh, attended and summarized a sermon by one of the, the newer independent pastors in which he took as an example a person who had come to that, uh, been part of that congregation, who'd had a road accident, which is very common in this area. And the, the pastor said that the, this was basically because he had not given his tithe. Uh, sixth, to go back to an earlier question, how are Christians to be counted? And are distinctions to be made between nominal Christians and good Christians. And finally, a seventh question. Should the visible unity of all Christians continue to be a goal for ecumenical Christians? Uh, this was a goal for when the Church of South India was established uh, soon after Indian independence. Should it continue to be such a goal More specifically, if the old church has fallen down, as it had in one village, and there is a new independent church, should the Church of South India try to reestablish the old church? Uh, or should they encourage people to go to the new church? Uh, that's a, a present question, not just in one village, but in many villages there. Um, so let's suppose that these different denominations are not going to merge. Can they work together? Can they overcome social distinctions and new Christian distinctions between denominations. Well, there are other topics that recur throughout the book, notably the contested meanings of conversion. 
and they may require comments uh, by our two respondents or by some of you. Uh, I'm delighted uh, that uh, two of my former students um, and two former professors at the United Theological College in Bangalore, uh, which, where we were, lived right next door during our first years back in India, uh, that they will be doing that. So I'll turn this over to them. John, very much for getting us up with a good report on the book and its major points. Uh, I realize I should have said it began. I had regrets from many people who wish they could be here tonight. From a little bit of a distance, uh, Professor Jack Hawley, Professor Rachel McDermott in New York send their regrets they couldn't be here. Uh, Tom Coburn, also another longtime alumnus of the center. From our own faculty, Kimberly Patton and Luis Hero Negron also send their regrets that they couldn't be here tonight. So allow me to introduce um, the first of our uh, discussants tonight, uh, Reverend Dr. Christopher Duray Singh, who is the Otis Charles Visiting Professor in Applied Theology and Faculty Emeritus at the Episcopal Divinity School across the Cambridge Common. Uh, Professor Duray Singh is a graduate of the University of Madras. He has a BD from the Episcopal Theological School, uh, MTH from the Senate of Sarampore in India, a THD from Harvard University, and the center, and a DD from Queen's University in Canada. Uh, professor Duray Singh has been a professor in theology at UTC in Bangalore, has served as the general secretary for the, uh, of the Council for World Mission in London, and both as director of the Commission on World Mission and Evangelism and the executive secretary for gospel and cultures of the World Council of Churches. He has also been a member of the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians, as a, uh, he's a presbyter of the Church of South India. He has made significant contributions to third world theologies and is a major advocate for rethinking Christian faith in witness and dialogue with people of other faith and cultures and in commitment to the excluded. As he says in one of his um, publications I found, my commitment is to discern ever anew the liberative and multicolored wisdom of God in all her rich diversity through imaginative dialogue with diverse cultural expressions of Christian and other religious traditions. Among his many publications, let me just mention several. He edited a book in 1998 called To One Hope, The Gospel in Diverse Cultures. Um, in earlier, much earlier in 1979, India's Search for Reality and the Relevance of the Gospel of John with Cecil Hargreaves. And his own book, which I think is based on his thesis, toward an Indian Christian theology, Ramanuj's significance, a study of the significance of Ramanuj's theological hermeneutics for an Indian Christian understanding of relationship between God and all else. So let us worship, um, <coughs> let us worship, <laughs> let us welcome Christopher Dray Singh. <laughs> you. We'll worship you only afterwards. <laughs> Friends, I want to begin by saying my only, or my primary qualification of being here is um, having known Professor Carmen at the time of writing of that book and until now, and being a student uh, both in the 60s here 
uh, when he started teaching, and later on as his student when I worked on Sri Ramanuja and Indian Christian theology. Uh, I should say I first met uh, uh, Professor Carmen even earlier when he was a research scholar uh, in Bangalore, and Paul Devanandan and he had come to Hyderabad, whether you remember or not, for a consultation on Christian witness, a school. And uh, I was one who was also present because I was at that time working and living in the southern part of Telangana, the Dornakal and Warangal districts. So in one sense, I know another part of Telangana, much drier and less developed part of Telangana than the one that uh, Professor Carmen is studied and referred to. And in 64, 65, he tells me that was the first year he taught here, I took a course on Hindu bhakti. And I wrote a paper for him. And that then led me to do my BD thesis on the concept of arul in Saiva Siddhanta, working particularly with uh, the Tamil text of uh, Manika Vasagar, Thiru Vasagam, and I call it, and the concept of grace in the religion of Yahweh. So that was my first exploration. And then that had led to continuous conversation uh, uh, with him during those four years and beyond. And as I said, that I cannot but reflect upon this particular book uh, without my own experience in another part of Telangana, uh, which in one sense uh, magnifies the issues that he identifies uh, much more uh, crudely, if you will. And I'm also happy that Sati is uh, my correspondent. And uh, I would leave a couple of those questions that Professor Carmen raised in terms of conversion and Dalit uh, Christianity to him because of his own research uh, in these two areas uh, more recently. I think I would like to simply identify four clusters of ideas or four uh, foci that run throughout the book. And uh, before he summed it up now, or he sent me the thing that I had already formed more or less these four clusters, any uh, chapter you read, it picks it up again or it addresses it from different illustrations, different examples. In that sense, there is a, uh, it's a wealth of material if you could take time to plow through it, uh, uh, small uh, stories, larger stories, running into two, three pages, but each of them raising uh, some pregnant questions around these four foresight that I would like to identify. Um, I think I should look at the time. I go until about 6.15 or so, is that right? Is that all right? Sure. Um, I think the first one that I would like to highlight uh, is the, the kind of a dialectic movement between the declining mainline churches, the emergence of independent new churches, and the declining mainline churches' response to that. It is the kind of a cyclic movement that seems to go on. And uh, I think uh, Professor Carmen identified these as separate uh, questions for himself. But for me, the intriguing thing is the, in the interrelationship, how uh, one uh, is responded by the other, and then the other is responded by. That, that kind of a dynamic is set in there. Primarily of the Church of South India congregations uh, in, in, uh, in this particular uh, area where probably that would be the 
the most dominant mainline tradition, if you will. And then the vibrant Pentecostal charismatic independent churches. Uh, and then thirdly, as I said, the, the at least an element of, yes, some signs of renewal of these mainline churches, which uh, uh, Professor Carmen adjudicates as uh, declining in, 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 in a way. And in that sense, uh, if I may say so, this study is a uh, little more, uh, I don't want to use that pessimistic, little more questioning the dynamism of the, of, of, of the, the established churches in this part. The, I think throughout the book, however, answers are provided why the mainline churches, particularly the CSA churches, face the problem they face. One of the primary uh, reasons is also the mission history had led to caste-based churches predominantly. And of course, in the southern part of Telangana, where I lived and worked for about six years, it's not only caste base in the sense of the Dalits belong to the Christian tradition, but even from within the Dalit tradition, there are two denominations working among two distinctly different communities, the Mala churches and the Madiga churches. And even if in one church these two congregations were there, they would have been from two different missionary enterprises, one from the Methodist church in uh, UK and the other from the indigenous church, Indian church in the southern part of India. So I myself remember in one particular parish, both congregations belonging to two different traditions, one Anglican, one Methodist, and both of them cannot celebrate the harvest festival together. So the presbyter who goes there, the minister who goes there, have to find two different times for the festival. This was in the 60s I'm talking about. But that particular tendency seems to be accentuated if we this response again, uh, uh, somehow one reason for that. The, the second reason that he identifies not as distinctly in this book as a quotation that he does in one of his articles uh, more recently in the review and expositor, where he says the, in one sense, the theology itself, the Christian teaching itself, far more than secularization hindered did not facilitate the Christian community to live, experience the, the spiritual milieu, the sacred reality of the, the larger Indian communities. In other words, the, the teaching was so reified in such a way, it allowed no room to experience the broad uh, context of sacred space and sacred time and sacredness of life itself. And I do think that uh, he provides ample of illustrations how the structure of these churches themselves also have led to the uh, decline of the churches, partly because one particular thing that he identifies within the CSI rubrics, the constitutions, all would allow uh, only those who are baptized. And of course, in a place where people are not educated, the, the, the confirm, sorry, people are not confirmed, the confirmation may come much later. 
Until then, I had not known this particular phrase, and he, as he puts it, they are considered to be on trial Christians only. So those who are on trial would be 80, 90%. And only a small group of people, aging population, would have to take the leadership. And, and similarly, the liturgical structure and the rubric is such, very little room for innovation. Now it is in this context of decline, you would imagine the radical freshness, if you will, of the charismatic Pentecostal independent movements that brought about. So it was, in a sense, very attractive to be drawn to. And along with that, that as he puts the uh, emphasis upon how those churches held up and become attractive by their highlighting healing and miracles, if you will. Now, it's in that context, then, the organized churches and the number of people whom he quotes as church leaders who later became leaders of the Church of South India for the, whole, for the whole of South India, even they could not do much because of the structures are too hard for them to change. Uh, one of the moderators of the church was uh, a faculty person whom he quotes in the, in the study itself. Now, very recently in his own research, he points to a few of these declining mainline churches, the CSA congregations, have had younger pastors who would want to learn from and relate to. And he uh, particularly gives a lovely story of a young pastor by the name Nitin Kumar and the kind of a work that he does in such a way. Uh, at least it makes it a little more attractive so there is a possibility of new life that may come in. However, the, his very positive appraisal of charismatic and independent churches and their miracle uh, and healing-oriented uh, attraction for the Christians in the mainline churches in themselves could be a problem as I would look at it, and I probably could see it happening again. He identifies that, therefore, uh, Christians can, the mainland Christians can be here as well as they go on to the other independent churches. So that, belong to both places. But my question that I ask myself, a group of Christians whose primary attraction to the faith if it's, is in terms of miracles and healing, how lasting such a faith can be. Because in this very part, I don't have examples from northern Telangana, but from southern Telangana, there have been Hindu miracle workers there have been very young boys, young men, Muslim miracle workers. And these very people who come to the, these places will also go to those healing and miracle places as well. So in what sense that itself could provide a sufficient impetus for the renewal of these uh, 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 struggling congregations, if you will. The second uh, set of questions and the foresight that I probably would like to uh, highlight is something that's fascinated by his notion of uh, his analysis of the dual adaptation of Christians in this part of the world. On the one hand, they have to adapt the, the, the Hindu milieu and the, the conversion, the Christianity that they have to their own personal life, faith, and morality. 
And at the same time, they also have the second move that they have to make, how do they live with and adjust to and learn from uh, and open themselves to the, the broader Hindu milieu. So constantly, there is this interplay between these two adaptations. And therefore, the question is, uh, uh, can they belong to these two traditions in one sense or not? Similarly, he also speaks of a double processes of change. Not only a process of change for the Christians, as they begin to adapt uh, the Hindu practices and, uh, uh, and uh, images and so on, and how the Hindu tradition also would live with, adapt, and accept the, 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 this minority Christian congregations. And adaptations at the personal level and the communal level, he gives a number of uh, illustrations. And most of them are, uh, are listed. Again, he's, uh, you should look at that. The, the list and examples of them are enormous, beginning with uh, uh, simple adaptation of, of, of style of worship to uh, using a pilgrimage, jatras, as an uh, important role for spiritual renewal, and uh, dances, and, uh, and, and music, and, and, and the rest of it. But my question that I ask myself of course, one more thing that I would say, the very effectively and more extensively given how Christians have adapted the rites of passage, if you will, all the way from the conception of a child to the burial practices. And he gives some very interesting examples of burial practices, which I had not known that uh, in, in, in the place of the fire with which somebody would walk, but now within the Christian, you walk with the Bible, if you, if you, if you will. But, and then he gives examples of what has happened to that Christian faith tradition, if you will. How uh, indigenous, how responses to Christian faith itself that this double adoption process brings about. But I wonder whether we need more reflection upon this adaptation process at the more rudimentary, at the more primordial, more pre-conceptual level, pre-articulated conceptual level, looking at the images themselves and how they live and what kind of a way it operates. How disparate images collide and coalesce in the minds of the of people's imagination long before they articulate them. I think it's important that it's it, that the more immediate and pre-conceptual, pre-discursive questions are asked. For example, one interesting uh, conflict in, uh, in, in the book that one can see, at one point when the question directly asked has how has Jesus redeemed you from your sin? And the question is, what is the significance of Jesus' death? The answer at that point for this conceptual question, Jesus has uh, uh, decisively redeemed me from my sin. But 
at a later part, some of the Christians who belong to these double traditions are asked. They do not, Professor Carmen identified, they do not point primarily to sin as a category that they live with. Because there are other factors. So at that point, the primacy of experience and immediate gut level responses are asked rather than uh, the manifest content of what has been confessed, what has been written uh, is there. I think it is there something more pregnant probably can be found at the rural Christians, which may be more creative than what meets the eye at the very uh, 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 mediated level, if I may say so. I think there, are, there is one Indian uh, uh, theologian who, of Advaita tradition who teaches in Calcutta, A.P. Alayas by name, and A.P. Alayas point to, and as a study of a Hindu Christian uh, leader from this very part, not from Telangana, but the Andhra itself by name, uh, Subbaral, and he looks at his writings, mostly poetry and stories. And as he looks at the poetry, how in the collusion of two metaphors, something new may emerge. I think, therefore, I want to believe even when where there is apparently declining churches, there may be kind of hyphenated, hybrid metaphors emerging, which may be potentially uh, uh, renewing, uh, which are renewal potential for us. I also know, for example, another example for, for, for a discussion here is that there was a person in, from, in the Kerala context, Abraham Ayrukuliel by name. He makes an empirical study of village Christians in North Kerala. Again, almost similar, not necessarily highly educated people. And the questions that are asked is that rather than what do you think about God, what words come to mind? Why these words? And that seems to provide a, a kind of a depth dimension, if you will, of what actually may be happening. And let me know. Turn to, I'm sorry. Let me turn to my third uh, uh, foresight, if you will, uh, oops, <laughs> which is Professor Carmen's uh, term, the multi-caste churches. I'm fascinated by that, the new phenomenon of multi-caste churches, um, partly because I'm a little bit skeptical about it, because my experience has been almost the opposite. Uh, as I told you, with this not only multi-caste, but within the Dalit community itself, two distinctly different uh, communities, where I've, I vividly remember when I go with the local presbyter, I'm from the southern Tamil Nadu, uh, when I go with them, uh, one of them may not eat with the, the Madiga community Christians. He has to bring his own uh, 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 dinner, even though the dinner will be provided. Even in cities like Bangalore, many denominations may 
operate along the missionary history, history area. For example, in Bangalore, we have one, uh, one congregation, Tamil speaking, predominantly of Anglicans, and they would have little or no uh, uh, membership of people from another community there. So it would be intriguing to see how powerful these multi-caste communities uh, uh, come to the fore and how flourishing that they may be and whether that is going to be a model for other parts of uh, uh, situations like um, Telangana would be interesting to see. And then of course a relative question is what role that the Dalit Christians play within these multi-caste uh, congregations and what kind of a power relationship that operates caste power relationship is something that we probably need to uh, raise. Uh, finally, um, my time is up. The, the, the question about the, the survival potential uh, that uh, Professor Carmen asks uh, for the divided churches, partly due to um, the structures and so on. I think the his question that he posed for us, is it possible that ecumenically minded people could call for unity of all churches so that there would be, uh, as the Church of South India came into being. But even the example of Church of South India itself may probably raise questions to the, to the organically united church question. Whether it is ever possible that we could think of churches united together into one organic one or different denominations across each other, networking with one another and cross-pollinate and cross-influence each other and thereby bring renewal to each. So the model of seeking unity is not, I think, would, would be possible if we look at the present uh, Church of Sophia still caste-ridden uh, still structurally in, uh, uh, inflexible. Uh, for I would think that what would it take for churches in, not only in Telangana, uh, between these new churches and the older churches and the caste churches and the multi-caste churches to be able to share across each other their stories of renewal, the questions that they are faced with and thereby uh, come together. And I think in that storytelling and sharing across each other, this book could play a central role. Because I do not think there's any other collection where this kind of a inner stories are told as powerfully and extensively as this book is. Thank you. So thank you very much. So Professor Dory Singh was here in the 70s, I believe. Our second respondent was here the late 80s to 90s, so a young man. Um, and Professor Satyanathan Clark did his BA and MA at the University of Madras, his BD at uh, UTC in Bangalore, his STM at Yale University Divinity School, and here at Harvard, and the center, his THD. He is a member of the Episcopal Church of South India. In his practice and research and teaching, he has cultivated specialties in contextual theology, 
constructive global theology and theology of religions. In a, a now getting longer teaching career, he was professor at UTC in Bangalore for nine years. He also served as a visiting contextual theologian from Asia here at Harvard University. And most importantly now is the Bishop Sundo Kim Chair of World Christianity and Professor of Theology, Culture, and Mission at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, DC. Uh, he's written a number of books. I know uh, personally, I guess, from, the, from when you first came, but also through your book, which I've had occasion to use in class, the 1994 Christ as Drum, a constructive proposal for Indian Christian theology, which is still a wonderful book and fruitful source of, of teaching. And in 1998, Dalits in Christianity, Subaltern Religion and Liberation Theology in India, and edited several books. Uh, his current projects finally include World Christianity, Theological Methods and Themes, Tales of Jesus in Asia, and Competing Religious Fundamentalisms. So let us welcome Sati Clark. It's truly a pleasure for me to be here this evening. Um, I bring this water because I admit I'm nervous. You usually actually have to only speak before one former professor. But Dr. Carmen trained Dr. Durai Singh and sent him to India. And he was also my professor at UTC Bangalore. So I actually have both my former professors before me. But it is really a, an honor for me to, to be a discussant for your book, um, Dr. Carmen. Um, let me start with um, a John Carmen story. Um, 1994 December, I'm defending my dissertation. Gordon Kaufman is my primary supervisor. But I cannot make imaginative jumps from the ground on India because John Carmen is there also on my committee. The dissertation is entitled Christ as Drum. It's looking at the religion of village India among the pariahs. Of course, Gordon actually sends off and says, you're fine. He sets the time. He sends me a couple of notes on where I should prepare just a little bit more. Lawrence Sullivan is the third reader. <clears throat> he sends me one particular point that he feels I need to work on further and explain. I don't hear from John. <clears throat> I walk into Gordon's office. And I sit down. All of them look quite rested. <laughs> and John actually has 12 pages of notes, handwritten. And he's actually going through them. And I said, I'm dead. It's not going to be 1994. This will be a couple of years. And so we start talking. John goes through his notes. He asks me one or two questions. Most of it was really complimentary because it brings his studies and says, have you looked at this? Why don't you look at this further? And at the end, when they all stand up and congratulate me, John gives me these 12 pages and said, I thought 
this will be important for you as I'm sure this will make it to be a fine book. I share this story because in many ways, this book has this twofoldness of John Carmen as a scholar. Drawing from the words or the metaphors of another Indian theologian called S.J. Samartha, there is a helicopter mode of research, and there is also a bullock cart mode of research. John may have been sitting high up on the tower up here in the citadel of Harvard Divinity School, but John had never lost sight of traveling and journeying at a pilgrim pace with people on the ground as they lived out their theology, loved through their theology, and embraced God and testified to God. And this is the method that comes through very clearly in this particular book. There is the helicopter mode in which you can see John's insights coming through. He's raising questions. He's looking at other research. He's prodding the reader to think creatively. And this indeed needs distance. It needs a form of being outside of the grind of village religion. But John also draws alongside, takes time, and is attentive to the small details of what happens in village Christian religion. So I think that this is a very, very important book for future generations of those who want to work with studying people's religion that often is formed by many different factors, some of which they have very little consciousness of. And so I think this is a very important book for students of religion. There's a second facet I want to lift up as well. And that is from my own work on world Christianity. A lot of the work that's coming out in world Christianity makes a lot of Western Christians say, wow, it's all happening there. It seems almost like there's an enchantment when one looks at this large phenomenon that in many ways is larger than life. And it almost seems like many times, at least in the US and partly in Europe, there's this feeling of, so what has gone wrong with us? John actually provides a real picture of world Christianity. There's a lot of kitsch. There's a lot of stuff that we run from and act like this is not true Christianity. There's a lot of us who work with liberation themes, see all of that just go up in smoke and say, so what have we been doing all this time? Mainly because it actually 
holds together a beast that is multiple ways of trying to be animal at one time. And so this neat packaging of what is world Christianity that comes to us as this global religion that is growing with all the exuberance and enchantment that in fact it holds for the West is not fully true. And this book shows us village Christianity, what's and all, and yet sees this as a dynamic movement that enriches people's lives every day, but not in the way in which we would like to shape it, study it, model it, and name it. And so I think what Professor Kahneman has done is in many ways to show us that this phenomenon is postmodern in a sense. It is also past modern because it's actually escaped a lot of the contours that modernity wants to place on phenomena. And so I think this book is also very important for people that teach in the field of world Christianity to lift up models that are true, real, messy, inchoate, fragmentary, and yet dynamic. They need to be studied. But you need to study them by drawing alongside and working collaboratively with multiple levels of people that are trying to look at this particular beast. There's a third dimension that comes through. And I will allow my creative side to read more into the book than there is, actually. And what is placed in this book is this movement from a Jesus-centric way of trying to understand village Christianity as rooted in a Dalit Christ and slipping away and slanting towards, slouching towards the spirit. Now, this takes place basically through some of what we're seeing in the new congregations, a form of charismatic leadership, non-word wisdom that comes from the spirit, and those that cannot basically be bound by textuality. Okay? They're not in seminaries. The leaders actually are out there. They're driven by the spirit, as it were. <clears throat> and one can see this movement taking place. And I think this is a very important part of what's happening in this book. Primarily for the reason that older churches and some of us now older Dalit theologians have always affirmed the Dalitness of Jesus and in many ways pushed the church to constantly be Christocentric. One of the things that we ignored is that village religion, particularly as we see it within the Telangana, is goddess religion. 
it is freeing it's mainly fiercely independent goddesses some of them are even not spousified they actually have this reign of freedom that goes out there to do the work that undercuts sometimes the gods maybe even our male jesus and so you see some of these directions that come through in terms of a spirit hugging village religion which is christianity and i think that this is another dimension that theologians will consistently need to work with as we look at what we can source from this book to make sense of the trajectory of dalit christianity and also multi caste christianity and so i think much more can be done linking pochama katta maisama yellamma all the goddesses that in fact are rooted in these village centers and who reign in their own culture and religious forms another aspect that i think is important is something that john placed before us this whole idea of christianity and dalit identity as all of you know uh, dalit basically means broken rent asunder or crushed right so this is a term basically that is trying to point to their actual reality interestingly it's not a caste affirmation it's an affirmation in a sense of primarily being outcasted and therefore broken away from all that should hold together now in general christian theology has generally claimed that dalits primarily have worked out this identity as being anti caste and anti hindu in fact a lot of times that my work with the dalit movements i have to constantly explain to them why in fact i can still do interreligious dialogue with hindus and still work with dalit theology because their assumption is that dalit theology undercuts caste and also undercuts hinduism village christianity that john shows us proves that instead of thinking of dalit identity as anti caste and anti hindu they may actually show us a form of reconciliatory forms of living out our christian faith in india how does this work it works by trying to form communities that in strange ways want to claim dalit identity if it can help humanization and that's why i think they would all be hindu/christians because if being 
Hindu in the books will allow them to push towards humanization, that's fine. So they're willing to share this, and yet they're creating spaces for genuinely open fellowship, dialogue, and prayer with those who are not Dalit. And this is a very interesting model. I agree with Dr. Duray Singh's point that we should look at the power dynamics that operates within this. Now, I found something that, again, is interesting. Of course, uh, it could be an overread of this. But it's very interesting that the caste women, who in some ways are disempowered, join with Dalit men in forging relationships of this community that, in fact, consists of both caste community people and Dalits. So this is really interesting. So in a sense, it seems to be a banding together of certain excluded as they're creating reconciliatory space for showing forth what indeed could be the body of God in Christ in village India. A final point, and that involves conversion. I think one of the things that will be interesting as we take this book forward <clears throat> is to see the change that's happened from 2009. And all of us know that India is struggling today with issues of holding together the body of India primarily as a Hindu country. Okay? And so on the one hand, there's ways in which Muslims have to assert that somehow they are Indian. And Christians have to constantly assert, yes, we're Christian, but actually we're Indian. Right? So I think this movement towards what happens in terms of the politics of conversion will be very interesting. The problem with the model that we have here <coughs> is that it is so on the ground and loose and fragmentary that it will go on without shaking up any of the structures of society that actually mediates power. And so I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on what happens through these conversions. Because much of the conversion story that we have here is based quite a bit on the individual and their own welfare, rather than the welfare of the body of the community that can be either called village, Hindu, or the body of Christ as being Christian. So I just want to make a comment to say that the issue of conversion that, in fact, John raises as a question, I think will, will take forms that cannot be predicted because of the major changes that are taking place structurally in this country. John, from the point of view as an Indian Christian, from the point of view of working with world Christianity, from the love that you gave me, to never forget that Bullockart modes of studying phenomena are extremely important 
to truth. And for the themes that you open up in terms of theology, particularly the movement away sometimes from a Dalit male Christ to a spirit-hugging form of Christianity, but also for raising questions in terms of what this means to world Christianity and to the people in India. I thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for an eloquent presentation. So for the final part of our time, we always finish uh, religiously at 7 p.m. Um, we could, I'd invite the three, um, John and, and Christopher and Sati, to come up here. If you bring the chairs up, we can help you do that. I uh, want to uh, give you a chance to raise questions. So perhaps I could wait, but I, I, there were a couple of uh, thank yous that I needed to make, which I didn't yet make. Uh, Two, uh, two people here who uh, went through the TypeScript many times. And uh, one is uh, uh, my wife, Anne. Uh, and she's glad she could be here. And the other is uh, uh, Peter Carmen, whom some of you have known years ago. Um, and. Uh, uh, he also did a lot of proofreading and making suggestions. Uh, and uh, I wanted to thank both of them. As, and I also want to thank both of you for uh, for uh, not confining yourself to my questions, <laughs> but in fact raising some other uh, very interesting ones. Uh, and I must say that, that in, I was intrigued in, in uh, Sati's thesis. When, when it came out as a book, you, hadn't, you changed the title. But Christ as drum and the idea of, uh, uh, I don't know whether you developed that, but the Indian a word shabda, which means wor word, also means sound. <laughs> so the idea of uh, a, uh, like the logos, but in terms that we haven't been used to thinking of the, the logos. So something that, that, that uh, it takes a different path or goes deeper uh, than just intellectual formulations. Uh, and I think now, uh, to Christ's drum, you're adding uh, spirit as, but I'm not quite sure what, but I must say that, that though I can't give a name to it, that when I think back to, uh, to the kind of uh, what I can only call fervent prayer, both of individuals, but sometimes of the entire congregation, uh, that doesn't fit in any of the Theologies that, uh, that that I can tick off as being the 
the different ways in which Christianity has been presented to and been adapted, ad adopted and adapted in India. But this, this fervent prayer uh, uh, sometimes takes strange forms, like the, the, the particular group I was in where a woman seemed to fall asleep, but obviously the people there thought she was in some sort of uh, special state but her, her husband hit her with the Bible uh, at the same time that everybody else was really praying hard for her to come to. Now, uh, as I say, that we don't have much uh, talk about uh, any kind of religion, Christian or Hindu, here at Harvard Divinity School that, that goes in that direction. And, and maybe that was uh, an exception. Uh, but it, uh, I thought of it in terms of, of your urging us to, you know, think about things in a new way, and, and if, if this book can help with that. I must also say one other thing, that is, it distresses me, it has from the beginning, that here we have a book which is published in this country and, and in England, and which will be, if it's bought at all, and I'm not sure how many copies will be sold, it's going to be bought by people who are five to 10,000 miles away from the situation we're talking about. At the same time, the people most directly concerned, many of them can't read English. Uh, and even those who can, can't possibly afford to buy the book. And, and this, in terms of, uh, how we address world Christianity. It, it, you, you were uh, suggested that you know the use of this book, but you know, how can you read the, use a, a book that the people that might be most concerned with it can't afford to buy or can't read because it's not in their language? Well, I, let me just stop there and, and uh, 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 ask if there are. Comments or questions from the floor is open. Uh, any comments or questions? Who'd like to go first? Yeah. Thanks very much for your presentation. I look forward to reading 50 years later the update. I had a question about what you each mean by identity. Because you all use the term and you all seem to use it a little bit differently. There was the kind of you know modernist sincere mode of it's a conversion of belief that then manifests itself in bodily behavior. And so registering your kids at school with Hindu names is somehow making you not quite Christian. But on the other hand, again, this is based on my own limited experience in India, we know that identity is you know, acted out through whom you eat with and whom you uh, are willing to participate out in the field with. So it's a very different sense of embodied active identity. And I heard mixtures of all of those things going through all three of your. And I'm, I'm just wondering, is there also a bigger clarifying argument to be made in this project about what actually constitutes religious identity in village South India or village South Asia, or let's just face it, South Asia for all times and all places until uh, sort of modern Protestant senses of identity are imported uh, to certain echelons of society. I wasn't sure quite what you each meant by identity, and I heard conflicting modes. So I wonder if you could clarify a little bit. 
I, I can start. Um, I, I, I'm glad you picked this up. There is, even as I think through identity, um, a lot of it, because of it simply being a noun, misses out on the dynamism of what actually is happening here. I see uh, identity really as 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 actually seesawing between two things. One is, and you mentioned this, it is who within a village system you are said to be. Okay, so there's, that's one. You could say this is probably who you can eat with, who you can't, who you can marry, what happens within this. So let's call this basically the passive modality of identity. But there's the other, which is the other side of the seesaw, which is the dynamism. You have the upswing, in which there basically is a launching for identification with, for example, your ideals of who you would want to be, who you'd like to eat with, who you'd like to marry, what happens within this. Now, religion plays a really important part, particularly with Dalit and the way in which I'm looking at identity, because it's trying to work with saying, okay, you say I'm this, but I want to be this, and I'm going to see if religion actually will allow me to launch forward. And so in that sense, it has both of these movements. So that's how I actually look at it. And that's why religion actually becomes a very interesting source, where people will actually switch religions to try and find some movement within this. John, this reminds me of the, the fact that, that most of these, the people in the older congregations, have two names. They have the name that they're called by everybody that they meet during the day. And they have the name that they use only in church, because that's the name with which they were baptized. Now, which name is more important? Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on the, on the individual, but it, the name is a, it's not only something you use for yourself, but other people use it to, to say who they think you are. Uh, and uh, they, uh, but then we have, in addition to, to that, which is true, I think, in any society, the fact that, that during the uh, British rule, by uh, in having a gradual introduction of democracy by vote, votes at the provincial level, you uh, uh, allowed people to express themselves, but you put them in categories. They were either Hindu, or Muslim, or Christian. Uh, and those, uh, uh, if you were Hindus worrying about uh, Muslims breaking away from Mother India, you, were, you wanted to keep the number of people counted as Hindus at a maximum. Uh, 
And uh, if you were, uh, and, and Christians themselves were divided during this period as to whether they wanted to be treated as a, as a separate political group. So in addition, and, and that now has its newer forms, but uh, it means that in addition to the, the usual ambiguity about identity and whether it's the way you think about yourself or the way other people think about you it's the way the government thinks about you and and uh, and uh, you I think you mentioned that we have to look at what's happened since 2009 that is uh, the most recent things with a, a Hindu nationalist uh, uh, government in, in the center of India and in many of the states um, and uh, you know, again, we found interesting things like people in Dalit families who were had positions in the in the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party. Well, what kind of identity do they have? Uh, uh, so I, I think it's a it's not only a general question for um, anybody in any society, but it has its 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 um, complications. In, in Indian society, where not only your name, but the kind of the way you wear your clothes and uh, what you have on your forehead and all of that, these are all marks of identity uh, in a way which uh, may be uh, you know, more obvious than they are in our society, uh, and, and which often uh, are marks of dividing people instead of showing their, their commonality. Yeah, I brought two just quick additions to what has been said. Um, the kind of identities we define and the, the various things that you describe, more often than not, have a functional value to them. You know, it makes me function in this way here, in that way the response. But then there is also a formative dimension to identity, which is processive, dialogical, continuously evolving. So I can only be, I can define ambiguously and also more or less this. <coughs> I really remember Raymond Panikkar talking about Christian identity in India or elsewhere. He says, uh, Judeo-Christian hyphen, uh, Greco-Roman, Hellenico, Anglo-Saxon uh, Christians more or less successfully. <laughs> which is a formative aspect of it. And, uh, and I do believe um, the, the stories in the book could also be seen uh, identifying that kind of a process, and therefore it's not bringing together the, uh, the Anglican, the Church of India, South India, the Catholic, together into artificially one body will have a united church, but they network, they crisscross, they shape this possible process of an emerging island. Thank you. Yes, Yes, I was fascinated to hear about the continuing uh, engagement with the goddesses, mm. the Lama and other goddesses, um, and how, especially in your presentation, uh, it intersects, or the discussion intersects with the, with the identity of Dalit, and, uh, or Hindu or Christian. 
because in uh, my own work in Orisha, which is a bit further north, um, the main uh, the main uh, festivals, the biggest ones, um, and I'll take two. One is uh, the the festival of Chaitra uh, for Goddess Mangala, Ma Mangala, and the biggest festival for the rural area, which is Rajaparva, which is the menstruation of the earth and women. And to take the, I'll just take the example of Mamangala and her festival. She has a big temple. She's considered the originator of Jagannath, Puri Jagannath, major pilgrimage center, major place in Hinduism. But at that major temple, 50 kilometers from Puri, during these five Tuesdays of Chaitra, uh, the major players are Dalits and Lokas, Mali who embody Mangala. They are Mangala. And uh, they, uh, they do wonderful things. They, they dress as women, they dance, they get water from the river, and then they walk on fire, all kinds of things. And I have witnessed uh, Brahmin uh, from the temple, where all of this is happening in front, because the elites can't go in. But all the important things are happening outside, right? And uh, Brahmin priest, uh, Sastanga Kanam, to the, the Dalit when they are Mangala. <coughs> and also they go to the big Zamindars and they tell them. They get in trance and, and they speak the words of the gods. And they tell, you know, very, sometimes very difficult things. Um, so. What I have seen, and not only in these examples, is that when the goddess, when it is the goddess, uh, caste disappears. And pe uh, people say, we're all the children of the goddess. And during this time, we're all brothers and sisters. And they eat together, and they sleep together. Um, in the man, you know, in tents, and so forth and so on. So uh, what I was, I was delighted to hear that, not surprised, but a bit surprised to hear that, you know, to kind of equate uh, too readily uh, Hinduism with, with um, a kind of hierarchical system. Well, sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. Uh, so. It doesn't surprise me at all and delights me to hear that the Christian Dalits continue with the goddesses, like they had always done. So I'm just curious. Yeah. In fact, one of the illustrations uh, point to that fact, a temple, uh, the church right behind it is the temple, the Mamandi temple. And there's a problem. Uh, you have Mamangala there? Isn't it Mangali? Uh, in your story. Yeah. There, yeah. And then they are, the church itself is called in the name of the goddess church because that's in the locale. But the freezing takes place, the division comes about, then no longer it is at this level of dynamic, but rather property. Where do you draw the line? Where is the wealth? Who will own it? At that point, something happens. 
fascinated by this idea of on-trial Christians and how many there were, and just uh, statistically, and what that, what we could say about their sense of identity, or in Sati's terms, who they are hope to be identified, who they hope to identify with. What's going on there? Do we do we have? I, and I'm, I'm, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if there's information in there about how they see themselves in terms of their identity as Christians. Are they in? A, a gesture of moving towards something they don't feel ready for yet, or a strategic deferral of something that it's better not to go through confirmation because that adds a, another level of sort of identity that they w wish to avoid. I'm just curious if you could comment on that. Uh, I think that uh, we found this was this was back actually 50 years to the earlier study of finding that there were people, uh, they didn't know whether they'd been confirmed or not. <laughs> uh, and uh, this was, a, in terms of their, their own community, this was a meaningless distinction. That is to say, they, they were, uh, uh, they made communal decisions, but the, it, it wasn't by, uh, you know, separating the people who really are the only ones that had the right to vote, who were, less than half the congregation. They made some kind of negotiated decision among all of the, at least all of the adults. Um, and clearly there, this uh, distinction between uh, baptized Christians and those who were, who were on trial, uh, <coughs> a really extraordinary term to use for, when it's more than half the adult congregation. Uh, uh, that was really had little meaning. But um, I, I realized even uh, at, at that time that I was looking at this um, um, as a Baptist who doesn't believe in separating uh, baptism and church membership. Uh, so I, I defer to uh, these presbyters of the Church of South India. Who, uh, uh, but we have many uh, examples uh, closer at hand in uh, the history of New England, the halfway covenant, uh, uh, which, which in effect also imposed a theological distinction which many people, for many people, didn't really fit where they were. Uh, and I think uh, uh, that uh, the, the We see a number of interesting examples of the difference between sort of official theological distinctions and how people feel about what they're doing. Uh, and um, uh, I'll leave it to people more radical than I to say we should then dispense with uh, uh, theological distinctions. Uh, but clearly we need to be aware that they are not operative for a large part of the community, which presumably is supposed to be uh, embodying them. Yeah, the only one short comment is that, that uh, along with this critique, we should also look at uh, uh, Professor Gardner's <coughs> critique of the structures and the constitution and the rubrics of the church. Right. For example, that the, uh, the confirmation service, the title for that service in the CSI Book of Common Worship, the right by which people are made into full members of the church. Mm. Baptism is not enough. 
So something has to be done to do what was lacking. And that, if it's operative then, it falls into all sorts of problems. Liturgical renewal, I think, including uh, Sati Clark's father, when he was a bishop, suggested an alteration. Baptism should be not, it, you know, no revision could be made. Just, just again, to, to, to continue in this vein, uh, we should also keep in mind the architecture of, of benefits. So this is not just theological power from God to claim that you're a Christian. But the moment you go and have confirmation and your name is in the book as a full Christian, you will then lose all the benefits of the state that you've been claiming, saying that you're actually Dalit, which means that you're not Christian. Because, so this is the politics. So what happened is, is this is very interesting in terms of the 50 years. See, 50 years ago, the church had real power. And so if you actually come out and you're like Sati Clark was registered, I could become a teacher, I could actually get jobs in all our institutions. What's happened over the last 50 years is that that is gradually eroding. And what is opening up because of reservation is ways in which you can get this in your panchayat school or the government school. So now what happens is Sati says, geez, how do I continue? I've done it anyway. How do I continue to get the other? So what happens is that you just hold in abeyance your confirmation. But what is happening in this is that Christians of the old church are outing you. So they're saying, if you try and take that position, we will out you because you can't have it both ways. So there's, there's a lot of that uh, real politic, politics, as it were. We better. We probably have run out of time, sadly. Um, but I think anyone who'd like to linger, uh, you know, socialize a bit more in the room here, you're most welcome. So let's close our formal session by thanking John and Christopher. And